Before I begin this episode, just a quick note that January 10th is the day that my course, Unearthed, on the roots of imperialism in the Christian Middle Ages begins. So you can purchase the course through the link in the show notes anytime before January 10th or after. You just won't be included in the course in real time, but you can catch up. This course will be delivered by audio recording. It's four units long, and you'll receive all of the course materials by email, including an educational packet with readings and images to go with your recorded lectures, which you can listen to at any time while driving or walking or doing the dishes. I'll be there with you when you want to hear me share everything I know about how the structures of religious culture in the Middle Ages affect our lives today. So you can find that in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy the episode. Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. This is the January Almanac episode of Fair Folk, in which I will be discussing the folklore and pagan roots of January celebrations with an emphasis on nourishing traditions that we can bring forward and apply to our modern lives to help us connect to land, and to history in productive and empowering ways. This month, I'll be focusing on the new cycle of years changing over the end of the Yule season and our relationship to labor and technology, which was a focus that arose for me while I was researching this January episode that hasn't arisen for me before, but it definitely is an emphasis of English and Nordic tradition, and it'll explain more as we go ahead. Other themes that arise in January folklore are the continued divination and predictive quality for the year ahead that we may have already seen in December folklore. Also the supernatural and the feminine visiting from the wilds beyond because it is still winter and these forces still rule. There's often a theme in January songs, especially of weather, bad weather, loneliness, cold, and love longing as metaphorically associated with those sensations of coldness and isolation in the wintertime. And of course, the slow return of the sun is being observed across European folklore, which is what I always focus on. The connection to labor and technology that I mentioned will be specifically explored in this episode relating to the god Odin, who shows up as Saint Canute or on Saint Canute's Day, and also plowboys and customs of speeding the plow that emerge out of England at the beginning of January as well. There are several folklore-rich holidays this month, and I'll name some of the most celebrated, mostly in Germanic areas, but you'll see them expressed in different ways across Europe. This includes New Year's Day, of course, Twelfth Night on January 5th, and Perchtennacht on the same day. Also the full moon, which happens the next 
Day, this month on January 6th. And this would have also been the time of Old Yule in Scandinavia, the pagan celebration of Yule. And the Christian celebration of Epiphany falls on this day regularly every year. This is also known as Three Kings because this was the day that in Christian legend, three kings or magi visited Jesus in Bethlehem. Plow Monday falls on the first Monday after January 6th, Epiphany, and then St. Canute's Day is on January 13th, and I'll talk about that with regards to Odin. St. Agnes's Eve is on January 20th, and this is a traditional day for romantic divination in order to predict who or when a person might marry. And of course, Robbie Burns Night is on January 25th. I won't have time to talk specifically about St. Agnes and Robbie Burns in this episode, so this is your heads up to make sure that you make a note to look into them yourself. If your interest is piqued by those days, there is a lot of information available about both of them online. You can just Google St. Agnes Day Folklore, for example, or Robbie Burns Night, (laughs) and you'll find plenty. As far as pagan origins of the celebrations this month, the one that holds the most interest for me at this moment is the traditional celebration of Yule in Scandinavian countries, which would have been celebrated on the full moon following the first new moon after the winter solstice. So the new moon after the winter solstice actually fell on December 23rd this year, which is quite early. So this full moon following is on January 6th, which is a lovely coincidence because this is also when Christmas used to be celebrated before calendar reform and still is in several Orthodox Christian traditions. The month of January itself has a pagan name. It's named for the god Janus, who's the ancient Roman god of doorways and who's often pictured having two faces, one looking forward and one looking back, much like we do at this time of year. This whole month is really a period where we can consider what we have experienced in the past year and compost the things that we no longer wish to carry with us forward to plan for the year ahead. It's also a month full of weather lore predicting the year ahead in weather. So you could say that the first 12 days of January, each day corresponds to one of the months of the year predicting the weather. Another tradition, both of these are from England, says that the last 12 days of the year predict the 12 months of weather. You can take that literally, or you can take the whole period as a period of preparation for the year, because the year has begun in January for quite some time in our culture, though The year is always beginning and is always ending because it's a circle, and there have been different official beginnings to the year, but I would say that it is quite well recognized at this moment in history and for some time that January is a beginning, and it is the beginning of the solar cycle visually in the sky, the sun being reborn. Right off the bat, I'd like to share a song that really embodies this sense of January representing the year ahead and planning for the year ahead. And it also has this sense of the technologies that we use to accommodate us and the different interfaces we have with seasonality and with the themes of the year and the encounters that we can have, who we become in the year ahead. And it's called January Man. And this January Man is described as wearing a woolen coat and boots 
of leather, and he walks on icy roads. He has 11 brothers, each of which is named after one of the months. July Man, no longer needing a woolen coat, wears cotton. And interestingly, you'll see the relevance of this as I continue this episode. The song also refers to the year as the man's horse with autumn as his bridle, which is a really beautiful image because I will be talking about horses quite a bit as we go ahead. The January man in general represents our relationship to cyclical time and to the seasons. And the January man, as the song says, is here at the start of each and every year. The song was written in 1970 by Dave Golder, and it has a really lovely way of absorbing traditional perspectives on the year while also making it feel timeless. Here it is, performed by Lau and Corrine Polwart from Scotland. Oh, the January man, he walks abroad in woolen coat and boots of leather. The February month still wipes the snow from off his hair and blows his hand. The man of March, he sees the spring and wonders what the year will bring. And hopes for better weather Through April rain the man goes down To watch the birds coming To share the summer The man of me stands very still Watching the children dance away the day In June the man inside the man is young and wants to lend a hand And grins at each newcomer And in July the man in cotton shirts he sits and thinks on August man and thousands take the road and watch the sea and find the sun. September man is standing near to saddle up and lead the year. Autumn is his bridle. Snow to let 
The first pair of days I'd like to talk about in January to bring our attention to for the purposes of this episode are January 5th and 6th. And they go together because January 5th is the eve of January 6th. So you may hear that January 6th is a certain day and then January 5th is the eve. For example, January 5th is Perchtennacht and January 6th is then Perchten. And Perchtennacht is a holiday or a ritual tradition emerging out of southern Germany and Austria, where people in costumes will process through the streets. These are monstrous costumes with lots of fur and horns and terrifying teeth and noses and sometimes beaks. They'll process through the streets, ringing bells, scaring children, and symbolically chasing out the demonic feminine element specifically of wintertime while also representing it. So the Perkten are named for Perkta, who I have mentioned several times in the last few episodes, but if you're new here, Perkta is a demonic slash protective feminine spirit that is especially active in wintertime and her intense period of activity is in the 12 days of Christmas. And so January 5th ends the 12 days of Christmas with this Perchten Nacht. And in other areas of Germanic countries, other feminine, demonic, winter spirits, beings associated with spinning and children are also active at this time, just as Perchte is. For example, Frau Holle. On this night, it's also traditional in some areas to make offerings to Perchte, of eggs, dumplings, or porridge covered in honey. She is known to lead the wild hunt, which is, of course, a large group of demonic and ghostly figures who ride through the skies, often on horseback or on sleighs or wagons or chariots, and threaten people across the countryside in the wintertime, being symbolic of the intensity of weather and of spiritual activity and the unsettledness of the dead at this time, the closeness of the spiritual world to the physical world. So this night in southern Germany and in other Germanic areas is one when this period of activity, the height of the wild hunt and of this dangerous feminine quality is coming to a close, that it is the sort of the sealing off point of that period of time. And so it's also a clearing out of certain forces and of certain ways of doing things. For example, women were not supposed to spin during the 12 days of Christmas, and the close of that period of time is also known sometimes as distaff day, because the distaff is where the fibers that are to be spun would be held. And so it's like Saint Distaff's Day, but there's no actual saint called distaff. It's just a symbol for the fact that this is the end of a period of sacred rest time. 
January 5th is also called Twelfth Night in England, and there it is traditional to take down one's holiday decorations on this day on January 5th. And some people say that it would be bad luck to keep them any longer than this day, although I've also heard the same thing said about Candlemas or February 2nd. So it's up to you. Twelfth Night is also traditionally one of the most common nights in England for apple tree wassailing. This might happen on January 5th or possibly the 17th, which used to be Twelfth Night before calendar reform. And this isn't the same wassailing as the door-to-door kind that you may have heard of around Christmas time. This is specifically a way to toast, to honor, and to communicate with the spirits of the trees in an apple orchard, which is a pretty wonderfully pagan tradition that is amazing to see is continued and has been revived with great vigor recently. So how this is done is wherever cider is produced by apple trees, people will choose the oldest, the grandest, the most productive tree in the orchard, and they will sometimes put toast in the branches, and they will take cider from last year, and they will toast the tree with the cider. So they'll pour the cider over the tree onto the toast, and they will drink the cider, and they will sing or shout a rhyme or a song to the tree, which you'll hear sung in a moment. This recording of this song combines some verses of the door-to-door wassailing associated with Christmas time and the apple tree wassail tradition in the way that lots of old songs tend to do, combine different elements as verses with a similar meter are interchangeable. But the key line that applies to that salute to the tree and the tree spirit tends to go like this. How well they may bloom, how well they may bear, so that we may have apples and cider next year. And the song often ends with a shouted incantation or announcement, hatfuls, capfuls, three bushel bagfuls, and a little heap under the stairs. Hip, hip, hooray. After toasting the tree in this way, while sailors will make loud noises, often by shooting guns, or alternatively by shouting or striking pots and pans. And this ritual both serves the purpose of frightening away evil spirits of the wintertime, which, as I've mentioned, were much more common with the sense of the dead being closer and also the sense of increased danger (laughs) due to intense weather. It also serves to awaken the tree so that, as this rhyme states, it will bloom and bear and we can have apples and cider next year. Here is the apple tree wassail by John Bowden from his impressive A Folk Song A Day project, wherein he recorded a folk song every single day for an entire year. Highly recommend you check it out. Here is the Apple Tree Wassail. Oh, lily, white lily, oh, lily, white pin, please to come down and let us come in. Oh, lily, white lily, oh, lily, white smock, please to come down and pull back the lock, for it's our wassail, jolly wassail, and joy come to our jolly wassail, how well 
they may bloom, how well they may bear, so we may have apples and cider next year. Oh, master and mistress, oh, are you within? Please to come down and pull back the pin, for it's our wassail, jolly wassail, and joy come to our jolly wassail. How well they may bloom, how well they may bear, so we may have apples and cider next year. There was an old farmer and he had an old cow, but how to milk her he didn't know how. He put his old cow down in his old barn, and a little more liquor won't do us no harm. Harm me boys, harm, harm me boys, harm And a little more liquor won't do us no harm For it's our wassail, jolly wassail And joy come to our jolly wassail How well they may bloom, how well they may bear So we may have apples and cider next year Jingles and the jingles and the tenor and the song goes merrily, merrily, merrily. Oh, the tenor and the song goes merrily, for it's our wassail, jolly wassail, and joy come to our jolly wassail. How well they may bloom, how well they may bear, so we may have apples and cider next year. The Sunday and Monday after Epiphany on January 6th are the traditional dates for Plough Day festivities in England, which are performed or enacted by ploughmen and in the Middle Ages, also the church. Speeding the plough, as it's called, is a cluster of English ritual traditions surrounding the beginning of the ploughing season. So that means breaking up the ground and spreading grain seeds for the coming year's harvests using a large contraption that breaks up the soil, which is pulled by traditionally oxen or horses or other strong beasts. This tradition flourished in the Middle Ages and the early modern period up to the 20th century when winter cereal crops were adopted, and so this time of year became less of a focus specifically for planting. And obviously, the idea of plowing in January may sound utterly impossible in some areas. For example, where I live, where nobody would be able to plow the ground at least until May. But the themes behind this focus on young laboring men in interaction with farming technology and the social dynamics and power dynamics that are innate in being employed, but also employing animals in order to work the ground in also a very specific way, which has shaped our society, the way that we interact with the earth. Not everybody agrees that plowing should have been adopted in one way or another. Whether we like it or not, it has shaped how we relate to agriculture. 
and the way that we relate to agriculture is also shaped by our worldview. And so you could say the idea that nature should be disrupted in order to create food for us preceded the invention of the plow, and then the plow reinforced that belief. I'm really curious about how these ideas come about, but I always feel like there's an interplay between our worldview, the idea that the earth is here for our exploitation and use, and our technology that expresses that worldview, and that would be the plow. I don't personally object to the plow. I imagine we can use it in balance, but I think that it is fascinating as a moment in history, this invention of the plow and what it says about our relationship to land, to mass production of monocultures in crops of grains, for example, and no shade on historic plowmen. But I just think it's a fascinating point for meditation. So I think that the themes behind this focus at this time of year on young laboring men and the plow connect really well with other pagan folklore at this time. And that's why I'm going to go into it a little bit further. So the expression, Godspeed the plow, which you may have encountered in folklore, you may have also just heard the expression, Godspeed, as a well-wish to somebody. And I can explain the use of the word speed in this context in that speed used to mean in the late 14th century, I have an example from the Etymological Dictionary. It used to mean prosper, grow rich, or succeed. So the idea of the plow receiving speed from God is this idea of blessing the plow, wishing that the supernatural support that's innate in the world will bring success to this physical implement, the plow, and by extension, us humans who are employing it, much like wassailing the apple tree would do. So just a little caveat, plow folklore and speeding the plow in general, these customs vary wildly across English regions and time. Some places have none of these traditions, some have more than one, and especially they've shifted in the atmosphere, the political and religious atmosphere of England because of the fact that Catholicism is a lot more accepting of animistic traditions and traditions where physical, visible objects are venerated or given attention, such as a plow. And Protestantism is much more interested in non-representational and textual-based forms of worship. So in the course of time from the Middle Ages to the early modern period, the focus moved from inside the church, from masses on plow Sunday, blessing, speeding the plow that would be visible in the church and would sometimes be kept there permanently, onto the streets where young men would process with the plow and raise money instead of for the church, which they used to historically do, they would raise money for themselves for a feast to celebrate the beginning of the harvest. There have been many times where these customs were outright forbidden, both because of the fear of idolatry in the Catholic Church and because of the riotous, rambunctious, and drunken nature of these celebrations being performed by lots of incredibly energetic, strong, and inebriated young men. So Plow Sunday this year falls on January 
8th. And some services, I believe, have been revived in England to bless a plow, a traditional older wooden plow that you'd see in the old days. But there also used to be a plow light, which was a candle that was left burning in the church for the harvest, for the plow itself, and would often be above a plow that was kept there all year round. On Plow Monday, the day after Plow Sunday, January 9th this year, plowmen with blackened faces to disguise their identity and often wearing colorful or, quote, antic costume and disguises would drag the plow through town and ask for donations for the church or for their feast. But these processions were notorious for being a mix of revelry and actual threat since the plowboys, as they were most commonly called, were sometimes the plow bullocks. They visited everybody's homes and demanded money from the people that they visited. It wasn't just like always happy-go-lucky. It was demanding coin. And if the money was not given to them, they would often plow up somebody's yard or dunghill or even force their way outside, inside the house and take what they wanted. They did tend to offer some entertainment in this process of proceeding through town by chanting a rhyme like this one from Huntingdonshire. Remember us poor plowboys, a plowing we must go. Whether it's rain, blow, hail, or snow, a plowing we must go. In some places, it was also traditional to hold elaborate Plow Monday plays and performances, and these would be a mishmash of popular customs and often related to plays performed at Christmas time with mumming and dancing, acting, singing, and often cross dressing. And these plays, rhymes, songs, celebrations of Plow Sunday and Monday all emphasized the strength and hard work of the plowmen, and almost all of them were, to varying degrees, drunken and rowdy. The rowdiness of these celebrations eventually contributed to their legal suppression, though the plays and performances have been revived since, especially beginning in the 1970s. So what's the relevance of <laughs> Plow Sunday and Monday to us now? Here's a couple of questions that arose for me in considering this folklore. Number one, what is a plow? I'd say it's a technology that allows us a certain quality of relationship to the land, which can be dominating or can be caretaking. And the other question that I feel is very closely related in this culture of patriarchal dominant relationship to the land, how those things are often tied together, the question is, what do we do with all of the creative, passionate, overflowing, and often destructive energy of young men? Because this is our responsibility as a society, and I think that it is something we are missing at the moment. We're seeing a lot of overflow of rage and aggression of young men, of inebriation, of dissatisfaction, and a lack of feeling integrated into society. And I think one of the solutions to this problem, which doesn't have to be a problem, it's an abundance of something. We have an abundance of masculine energy, which is productive, which is creative, which is passionate and meaningful. And we lack 
ritual contexts and containers and examples for this energy to be responsibly channeled and embraced. And this has been a problem (laughs) for hundreds of years. So for example, here is an old folk song called The Plowboy's Dream that uses the context of the moral dichotomy in Christianity of heaven and hell to illustrate how the energy of young men can be responsibly and irresponsibly channeled. So this song tells the story of a dream that a, quote, stout and strong young plowboy had that serves as a lesson to others. So he sings this song and he teaches the song to other plowboys so that they can know what he knows from experience. Three years since, it says, he had a dream that the ground was frozen hard as bricks instead of clay. And he's cursing and he's lashing his team of cattle for not being able to break the frozen ground because it's January. Then, suddenly, he's visited by a floating youth, an angel with purple wings, who tells him, do not thy beasts abuse. Think, if the ground was not so hard, would they their work refuse? And in his dream, he sees the ground open up and blue flames of hell lick his feet. And the devil himself says, soon I shall call thee mine. This song, of course, very much has a moral. And the moral is to not abuse the privilege of your physical strength, especially as it relates to the animals who work alongside you. And what I think is really beautiful about it, too, is this young man is taking another strength that he has, another creative expression, and that is song. And he's passing this story through song to other young men and encouraging them to sing, which is an expression of masculinity that is in some ways all too rare these days among ordinary people, among laborers as opposed to professional performers. And it's something that I'd love to see more of myself. I hope you enjoy this song. It's very fun. It's The Plowboy's Dream, sung by Janice Burns and John Doran. I am a plowboy, stout and strong as ever drove a team. Now, three years since, as I lay in bed, I had a dreadful dream. Now, since that dream has done me good, I put it down in rhyme. That other boys might read and sing whenever they have time. I dreamt I drove my master's team with Dorbin, Bell and Star. Before a stiff and handy plough as all my masters are. I found the ground was big so hard was more like bricks than clay. I could not cut my furrow through, nor would my beasts obey. Dobbin lay down both bell and star, they kicked and snorted sore. The more I lashed, cursed and swore, the less my cattle stir. Then low above me appeared a youth who seemed to hang in there. With purple wings and golden hands as angels painted are. Give over, cruel wretch, he cried, nor thus thy beasts abuse. Think if the ground was not so hard, would they their work refuse? 
Besides, I heard thee curse and swear as if dumb beasts could know What all thy oaths and curses meant or better for them go But though they know not, there is one who knows thy sins full well And what shall be thine after doom, another shall thee tell no more said he, but light as ere he vanished from my sight. And with him went the sun's bright beams, and all was dark as night. The thunder roared from underground, the earth did seem to gape. Blue flames broke forth, and in those flames a dire gigantic shape. Soon shall I call thee mine, it cried with a voice so drear and deep. That quivering like an aspen leaf, I wakened from my sleep. I am a ploughboy, stout and strong as ever drove a team. Now three years since, as I lay in bed, I had a dreadful dream. Now since that dream has done me good, I put it down in rhyme. That other boys might read and sing Whenever they have time The plough traditions of January invite us to reflect on masculine creative power and its relationship to labor and also to dominance and to rage which are two elements very closely tied to labor at this time in our world with its stark class imbalance, with the arbitrary inflation that we've been experiencing over the last couple of years, with general lack of access to land. And it should be noted that plowboys typically did not own their own plow and definitely didn't own their own land. They were hired laborers historically. And I want to be clear that I believe very strongly that the raw physical power of humankind in general and of men specifically, is a sacred thing, that masculine strength is a beautiful container and resource. But the question is, how can we teach about its sacredness and actually respect it? That is, not only witness it and let it run rampant, but also understand how we can harness it in balance. How can we ritualize physical labor and make it powerful in nourishing ways rather than destructive ones? How can we respect the ways that men's labor and human labor provides for all the earth already? And how can we relate to technologies that we use and technologies that use us in more empowering ways, like the plow, but also like any other technology that we use, which is very much a conversation that's happening right now. But the internet isn't the only technology. We're constantly interfacing with technologies. Language is a technology. Homes are a technology. Farming is a technology. Everything we do employs some sort of layer of tools and tool making, and that's beautiful. Ritual is a technology. So let's use these technologies in ways that bring us to life and that honor the sacredness of our effort. 
there is this fine line that ritual often treads and draws our attention to, which I think is meaningful because there is no only one right way. We do need to be in balance. We need to be in balance between giving and forcing, between offering and overpowering, between our passion and our outrage and total chaos and loss of control. And of course, we'll always teeter on the edge of those things. And that's what being human is about. But I love how ritual brings our gaze to that beautiful, fine line so that we can begin to grow our muscles for balancing on that precipice between ways of moving through the world. I think the difference between the effects of our action often comes down to not what the action is or even the direction that we're headed, but more the quality of our movement as we walk through our days, as we do our labor, whatever our labor has to be in that moment in order to receive what we need in return. This next song, The Plowman's Glory, really touches me in the way that it represents this beautiful effort of labor, laboring on the land or laboring in any way, and the ways that we can hold that up and we can appreciate it. And we can also appreciate ourselves and make that sacred, to take the sacred effort that is labor and to meditate on it and to sing about it as this song does and refers to as well. This is The Beautiful Plowman's Glory by Lisa Knapp. Keeper of sheep 
is April, there is May, there is June and July. What pleasure to see the The Norse god Odin is strongly associated in Nordic folklore tradition and paganism with the Yule period and the end of this period in January. He's also described in Scandinavia and other Germanic areas as one of the leaders of the wild hunt, often along with Hala. One of the names he's repeatedly called in Old Norse text is Jolnir, meaning Euler, so the one who does or makes or presides over Yule. January 13th is St. Canute's Day in Sweden and Finland, though his actual death, Canute, the king of Denmark in the 11th century, is in July, and saints' days, as a rule, typically are celebrated on the day of the saint's death 
But because of the prevalence of Odin and Odin folklore at this time of year and the way that the saint had absorbed so much of that folklore, the church found it important (laughs) to place the celebration of Canute at this time of year in order to keep things on the official path of absorbing pagan gods into Christian saints. So this Saint Canute took on many of the characteristics of Odin. As I mentioned, he's depicted bearing a spear, which is also how Odin is known. That's the weapon that he's known for carrying. He's said to have died in a town called Odinsvi, and furthermore, killed by his people with a spear. And Odin is also sacrificed. He sacrifices himself with a spear on the world tree. Odin was also the patron of Danish royalty, and St. Canute was a Danish king. These examples of the connections between them are just the tip of the iceberg, and there is a lovely YouTube video all about these connections between the two figures by Rune Rasmussen on his Nordic Animism channel, and I will link that in the show notes. On St. Canute's Day, according to Rune's book, The Nordic Animist Year, which I also highly recommend, On this day, masked people called Canute walkers would process, much like many other masking traditions at this time of year, between houses and request the rest of the Yule beer to drink, the beer that was prepared for Christmas celebrations. There was also a saying that Canute chases out the Yule, which further emphasizes that connection with the wild hunt and also really clearly relates to Perkton and Krampus masking traditions, as well as the apple wassailing tradition, with their loud, scary, boisterous quality, which is intended to clear out that energy left over from Christmas time, which was heavy with the supernatural and with the dead, and also probably a lot of hangovers and feeling too full. So here's the thing about Odin that I want to share. I have often avoided Odin, in a way. I mean, I've learned plenty about him, but I've always been a little bit wary of this figure when people show a lot of interest in Odin. It's not like there's anything wrong with that specifically, but there has been a tendency for pagans who are interested in white supremacy or lean in that direction to embrace Odin specifically or to name themselves different Odin-based names, such as the Sons of Odin, which is a racist organization in Canada. And also, as far as pagan gods go, the evidence suggests that Odin is actually new, that he came to prominence in the age of warrior chieftains in the Middle Ages, or I guess a little earlier than that, maybe the Iron Age. And these were people who were vying for kingship in moments of scarce resources, And they were also influenced later so that the depictions of Odin were influenced by Christian patriarchal structures, which is why likely he's known as the All-Father or the highest of the gods. And I think that's also why he appeals to white supremacists who also tend to embrace patriarchy. So you can see how Odin stuff can get a little sticky, right? He's this newish god who's connected with dominance masculine authority, and centralized power. But there's also more to him, right? He discovered the runes while he was hanging upside down on Yggdrasil, stabbed by his own spear. And so therefore, he was a god of poetry, 
And in the Viking Age, that meant he was also a god of skaldic poetry. And that's poetry that sings in the later ages about kings, legends about kings and their amazing deeds. They're hired by kings to inflate their image, right? And so many of these stories would be false, though beautiful, I'm sure. Many of them would be propaganda. But there's, again, nothing wrong with poetry. There's nothing wrong with language as a technology and specifically written language, because it was the runes that he found, not just poetry or spoken language. He also rides upon a horse called Sleipnir, which has eight legs. And there's a lot of interesting theories as to why it has eight legs. It may be that it derives from Indo-European mythology of the two twins, which are these solar deities connected with the sun and who rode horses. And therefore, if you put two horses next to each other, they look like they have eight legs. It could also just be a reference to the speed of his horse. When a horse is moving really fast, it looks like it has more legs than it does. He's also, as many of you would probably already know, he presides over the Hall of the Slain, Valhall. So he's a patron of fighters. He's very much tied up in this whole matrix of masculine creative power and use of technology with horses and with language and with rulership, which is a real sticky subject, but also a powerful one. He's a powerful humanoid figure, a wandering warrior. He can also serve as a model for men who feel eclipsed from society or who identify with the figure of the mercenary. So I don't dislike Odin, but I do think he has a very complex legacy that would do well to be looked at very closely and given more complex ritual to deal with it, just as we were talking about the plowboy rituals. I think that we can use this material in really creative and beautiful ways, as long as we are intentional about why we're using it. What are the emotional reasons behind it? And what are the emotional messages that we're conveying when we invoke it? So as I was reflecting on the relationship between speeding the plow customs and the worship of Odin at the end of the Christmas season, I pulled a tarot card for the month of January to help me draw my focus a little narrower for a moment. And it was so cool because I pulled the chariot card. And as you may know, chariots are traditionally pulled by horses, <laughs> by men specifically tend to ride them. And this is fascinating because that's also the tarot card of this year, numerologically. So two plus two plus three adds up to seven, and seven is the number connected to the chariot in the major arcana of the tarot. And this is something that Lindsay Mack, a tarot educator, has talked about on her podcast recently, Tarot for the Wild Soul, and also in this yearly offering that she makes called The Threshold, which I bought myself. And I know you would find wonderful and rich if you are interested in using tarot. And Lindsay Mack teaches that the chariot card is about shedding old containers, like older ways of being. The chariot itself is a, a technology or a, an enclosure that we are in that serves us for a time but this card for her symbolizes when we've outgrown one of these containers that no longer works for us, such as patriarchy or 
exploitation of the earth or of animals. Some examples that she uses for this container that we might shed is something like a snake skin or the first enclosure that we encounter, which is the womb, which we inevitably outgrow and have to leave. It's about growing out of old structures, which is very much what we are doing societally right now. Old structures that we are just too big for, that we've grown out of and that we know it, and it's time for us to find newer, more vulnerable ways of being in the world that take a lot of bravery because growth is always very vulnerable and always very scary. So pulling this card, the chariot, reminded me that men on horseback have had such a powerful and watershed symbolism specifically in European history that I know about. I'm sure they have symbolism in other cultures as well, but this is the one that I'm familiar with. And horses pulling chariots specifically were a huge military development that led ultimately to the Roman conquest of Europe and then the Christian imperial conquest using their models, using their roads. Similar to how I was thinking about the plow, I want to ask you, what do you think a horse is for in our culture? Historically, in ancient Scandinavia, in pagan times, a horse was understood to be able to travel to the other world. Odin rode Sleipnir to other worlds and also the world of the dead. There were 15 horses included in the Oseberg ship burial, which is this massive ship that was buried that's now on display in Oslo in Norway which held two women who were obviously of very high regard. And they were accompanied by these 15 sacrificed horses, among many other grave goods. And this indicates that they obviously they were very special people, but also that there was a belief that these horses would be involved in assisting their transportation to where they were headed, the next world. There's also a young man that I saw buried with a horse in the Reykjavik National Museum, the National Museum of Iceland. This is a common practice to bury a person with a horse in this period. Horses are also innately, symbolically intertwined with the culture of men who find themselves or hold themselves above the earth, who have a height or a strength or an economic advantage that allows them to rise above certain circumstances that others maybe could not. Odin is also not the only god represented on horseback. There are also many saints. You might think of St. George, who is on a horse and is slaying a dragon, who represents paganism. Previously, the imagery was the other way around. There was a pagan hero figure who would slay a dragon in a lot of different Indo-European traditions. The dragon didn't represent Christianity. It just represented chaos or more like earthly elements rising up and the dynamism between a sky god, such as like a thunder god, which strikes downwards, and a serpent-like creature, which rises upwards energetically. And that dynamic tension, which is very fruitful. But there is something about the horse rider that I think we can all agree has this intense connection to specifically masculine creative power, which is in all of us, but is something that we are 
really working hard right now to rework in our understanding, to ritualize and to make sacred again, because it has been so misused and so degraded by a lack of understanding of its power and sacredness, I would say. So I guess the question is, like, where does the knight in shining armor become a mercenary? And where does the wagon become a war chariot? And how can we hold the beautiful tension between these things so that we can harness the energy of our passion and of our rage and of our righteous indignation and of our excitement and of our arousal without falling into fear and confusion and aggression? I know that's a big question for January, but how do we set up the containers that we're going to need in order to balance those things as we walk the year ahead. So I'll end this episode with suggestions for how you might apply this folklore, the pagan precedence for it, this pattern for relationship to land and community this month. The first, if you haven't had the opportunity to look ahead at the coming year and do some divination or planning whether that's pulling tarot cards or doing a year walk, this is a really good time to do that still. This liminal season isn't over. January is very much still about preparation. And of course, you're welcome to wassail any fruit trees that grow near you or that you harvest from. But my biggest invitation is to invite you to investigate the structures and technologies of your life and just take an inventory if there's any that you've outgrown. And these are not just digital technologies, though they may be. You may have outgrown a social media platform or a way of relating to a social media platform. Maybe you're using it in a more addictive way when you could be using it in a more empowered way. But also just thinking about how you use language to communicate the messages that you're spreading and what the emotional content of those messages are. Have you paid attention to how you feel before you speak and how you speak will make others feel. And how are you using work and how is work using you? And I don't want anybody to feel like it's their job to solve the labor issues that we're all encountering right now, but just to witness them with neutrality and see where you can invite more ease and Maybe are there ways that you can give yourself permission to celebrate, to sing, to be soft, to dance, to play at any point in your life? Don't let work and your work obligations mean anything about you and your value as a person, which is already sacred, which is already beautiful, and exists outside of that container that I understand probably takes up most of your time, if you're like most people. I'd also encourage you to take an inventory of any masks that you're accustomed to wearing in this moment of masking and of revealing. Are there ways that you are doing things just for show or moving in ways that don't feel as genuine as you might like or as mature as you feel now, a year older than last January? One way to think about outgrowing containers is to ask yourself what in your life, if you shifted it or even removed it, would make you feel more free? Is there any 
habit in your life, even a relationship, that if you loosened it up a little bit, you would feel relief. This might be found in a way that you're working or you're relating to other people. It might even be a place that you live. I left a whole country last year, and that was a really intense experience, but it was one that was responsible to my inner truth because I just don't do well in deep winter. So I left Iceland where I was living, and I moved back home for a while before I moved somewhere else. We can also let ourselves change what we want is something that I'm learning. It's okay to want one thing, get it, and then find that you want something different now. That's dynamic energy and change and passion, and that's part of our birthright as humans to be creative and to grow and to become different people. So maybe instead of wishing for circumstances outside of us to change in order to make us happy, we can take out the middleman and we can experiment with practicing happiness, or at least opening towards the possibility of practicing happiness. And we can do that by togetherness, by gathering together with song and with ritual and with appreciation of animals and weather and the cyclical nature of time. Some things will die and pass away this year and others will be born. We can be sure of those things and we can be sure that loving one another and the beauty of this place that we live in together and speaking and singing that love will always be the right choice. Whatever we're laboring at, whatever we have, whatever we've lost, and whatever we receive in this year to come. That's all I have for this episode. I'd like to thank, with all my heart, the musicians whose music graced this episode. Please go to the show notes, find the links where you can buy these tracks and albums. I've also made a Spotify playlist for the month of January. It's short and sweet, and it's full of really cool references to love and weather, and plenty of plowboys. The instrumental track you heard in this episode was St. Agnes Eve by Carol Wood. And this is the last time in my podcast that I'll be mentioning this, that January 10th is when my unearthed course begins, and you can sign up anytime before then through the link in the show notes. And I hope you'll do that if you're feeling inspired to. You can email me anytime at fairfolkcast for your questions or feedback about this show or my courses. Special thanks also to Sylvia Woods, whose song Forest March is the intro theme to Fair Folk. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.